Hey there, I'm Zen Hess. You are listening to Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thank you for joining us today. So we are currently neck deep in what prospective students and current students and former graduate students call application season. And it is not the best time of year, but it is a time of year where a lot of people are wondering what this or that graduate program is like. I remember during my own application season, trying to get as much information about my prospective schools as I could. And so I thought it might be interesting for our listeners and prospective students in the future to have a window into Baylor's graduate program in religion. So I'm grateful today to be joined by my good friend and colleague, Catherine Ellis. Catherine is a second year PhD student here at Baylor studying theology in our religion department. She is a member of the Graduate Student Association as a representative for the religion department, and she's joining us to give us an inside look at the program that we are both participating in. I hope that you'll find this conversation helpful, and if it leaves you with questions that you think that you'd like to have answered, I'd love it if you reached out to me at zen underscore hess1 at baylor.edu, or if you're listening to this somewhere down the line and you think that maybe I'm not a part of Baylor anymore, then you could probably navigate to baylor.edu slash religion and find contact information there. In any case, I hope that you'll enjoy this episode. And if you are in the midst of application season, I wish you all the best. Enjoy. Catherine, thanks for joining us on Currents in Religion. Thanks so much, Sen. It's great to be here. Would you tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing a PhD in theology here at Baylor? For sure. Um, So this is actually my kind of return to Baylor, if you will. Um, I actually went to Baylor University uh, for my undergraduate and also studied in the religion department. Um, And so after that, I spent some time abroad Um, in Scotland. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. And then um, ended up at Princeton Theological Seminary for my master's. Um, And when I was sort of going through the process that uh, most current PhD students try to block out from their memory of applying (laughs) to programs, um, Baylor seemed like an obvious, um, really good fit, just given... um, the great experience that I had had here as an undergrad and also the professors that I was able to work with and mm-hmm. knew that there was some shared interest there. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us to talk a little bit about this program. We are both students, so I'll, I'll probably jump in here and there, but um, excited to hear your perspective on it. Let's start a, right off the bat with a little bit about how the program works. So over the past year, year and a half since we've been here, there's actually been some pretty significant changes from the structure of the program itself to funding and all of those sorts of things. So let's start with the structure of the program. What does it look like for you 
as for a student to come to start and to complete the PhD here? For sure. So um, typically it is a five-year process. Um, that's pretty typical for most PhDs in religion. Um, and that's definitely the case here at Baylor. Um, so you have funding for those five years. Um, of course, some people manage to finish a bit earlier. Others take a little bit longer. Um, however, your first two years during the program, you're in coursework. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of um, your main task in your first two years is to uh, typically take about three-ish classes a semester along with your graduate assistant work. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I suppose related to the funding question, the stipend that you receive while you're a PhD student is related to that uh, graduate assistant work that you do with a professor. And that's during, during the semester is about 15 hours a week typically. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. It's um, really manageable and not only manageable, but um, really contributes to your own learning throughout the program. Um, it depends on who you're working for and what makes the most sense for them in that given season. But that GA work could look like helping them research a mm -hmm. book that they're working on um, or uh, indexing everyone's favorite task. Um, <laughs> or, it, But it also often looks a lot like um, assisting with their undergraduate teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, grading, overseeing classes, uh, occasionally teaching the class. Um, and so it's a great way to kind of work on those skills sort of in, in connection with um, one of the faculty. So yeah. I, I've found it really enjoyable. And there are some, I should add, positions that are not directly linked um, with a faculty's kind of own specific um, research or teaching. So right. like one of my, part of my role as a GA is this podcast. Um, I know others who serve um, in various capacities, either for the department or um, for the journal perspectives or, or, or other tasks. The graduate so yeah. school, right. Right. So right. there's some other um, options too available for graduate assistant work. Definitely. And um, it, it's not always possible, but often the hope for the department is that um, your graduate assistant work is something that interests you or um, might be helpful for you down the line. So we have students that are perhaps more interested in administrative sort of careers mm -hmm. um, within higher education. And so opportunities to do GA work in the graduate um, school, sort of more at the kind of admin department level, that can be really helpful um, yeah. for them. Or, for example, like this podcast is a great skill to use in a myriad of different vocations. So, yeah. And so I guess we should also talk about another change that's been underway since we've gotten here, which is the, the financing of our stipends um, that we that we receive for the graduate work that we do. Um, they're increasing, which is fantastic <laughs> for us. So help me um, remember the numbers. It's uh, starting in this coming fall, 26,000 for the year, and then the fall after 28, and then the fall after that 30, where it's going to at least at in the current plan, stay at 30. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. B Baylor is thrilled to be an R1 school. And with that, the university is really committed to their doctoral students. Um, and so those figures aren't um, just specific to the religion department, but to all PhD students in the humanities and social sciences. Mm -hmm. Those in STEM have a slightly higher uh, sure. rate. But um, 
that really was a moment of uh, the university and specifically the provost's office really graciously being committed to um, ensuring that not only are graduate students able to have kind of live and flourish in Waco during their time here, but also um, just given the kind of uh, scholarly advances that the school has made and is hoping to continue making it sort of a commitment to um, the scholarships of graduate students. So definitely an exciting thing for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, we've gotten two years in, two years, is the first two years are coursework and graduate assistant work. What's year three? So year three, still doing graduate assistant work that continues. Um, you sort of move on to what Baylor refers to as the kind of qualifier stage. So um, for other institutions, this looks like uh, this might be termed examinations or something of the sort. But this is when you sort of move from being a Ph.D. student to um, hopefully a Ph.D. candidate um, as you kind of prepare to shift from that student to kind of role of working on your actual dissertation. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's, that's been a big shift for the department within the past year really is this qualifier method, right. um, which I think is really exciting. It mm -hmm. looks slightly different depending on which, um, kind of subset of the department you're in. So I'm in theology, for example, and of course, send your new Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, so it looks a little different theology, new Testament, Old Testament, as well as church history. Um, however, uh, it, it's sort of a slight move away from examinations and in some ways is more of uh, perhaps like a portfolio model. Okay. Does that seem right Yeah, to I you? think so. I, and again, like you mentioned, there is a difference actually in the areas between New Testament, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, theology, and uh, world Christianity, church history. Th those four areas um, each have determined their own way, um, which is, I think, a distinctive. I, I'm not aware of other um, programs that do that, but you did some of the research, right, to kind of help uh, help the department think through whether a portfolio model was um, practical or, or realistic to do. Uh, so you probably know a little bit more about that. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know Baylor was sort of looking at um, other programs and some of the shifts that they made regarding there's uh, fewer hours of coursework than there previous, previously was. So you're only in two years of coursework and also the a slight shift um, away from the examination model mm -hmm. was looking at what some other programs are doing, but also really uh, for trying to think, and this again is area specific, but trying to think about what is the most helpful um, for this area, particularly given sort of uh, some of the difficulties of the job market and how best, um, how how to use your time best in the program while you're here. Right. Um, and so for my area, that looks, those qualifiers look like sort of um, preparing journal length um, papers that mm -hmm. you're hopefully going to submit for um, publication um, along with sort of book reviews. So okay. uh, a model that helps sort of strengthen your CV while also um, working perhaps towards some of your research mm -hmm. interests and your dissertation while also providing some breadth um, to your scholarly knowledge. Right. Yeah, I think from my understanding, Old Testament has maintained the closest thing to what was standard across the board for all of our areas um, previously. So it has the most kind of um, examination feel to it. Um, and then New Testament is similar to theology in that we're doing 
um, yeah, we're taking, I think, four of our seminar papers and reflecting on um, what those things helped us to understand about the field of New Testament studies, but also um, where our room for improvement it would be, um, and then reflecting on a few other kind of things that we would have done, presenting a paper at a, an ac academic conference or um, getting a paper accepted at a journal or something like that, and, and reflecting on how those um, experiences have contributed to our learning and to, uh, to reflect on how those things will uh, need to change for us in the future to, to do them better and to, and to contribute to the field. So there is an array of, of um, ways that, that the um, preliminary or qualifying mm -hmm. things can look. And I, I think that's exciting and interesting. So that's year three, at least part of it, right. because year three can also be for us a transition year into um, writing the dissertation. Yeah. Right. And I, I know, I think this is the case for all of the areas that part of those qualifiers include the steps that you have to take mm -hmm. um, prior to sort of being approved to start on your dissertation. And so those kind of look like literature reviews, um, kind of a shorter proposal, and then a longer proposal of your actual dissertation topic um, that have to be approved and defended right. um, prior to you actually getting the green light to yeah. start start writing. So cool. And then fourth year, we move into basically dissertation writing or, or potentially revising the longer proposal and making sure that it's ready to get going. And then fourth year is kind of consumed with writing. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I think the hope is that by summer before your fourth year, even fall of your fourth year, you're kind of, you're, you've got the green light. So you're starting to starting to type away. Yeah. Um, but also included in fourth year is a teaching colloquy. Mm -hmm. um, so one of uh, the great gifts of um, the program is getting to teach both in the fall and spring semester of your fifth year. Mm -hmm. um, during the program, you get to um, be a teacher rec record for two different undergraduate classes in the religion department. Mm -hmm. And um, because Baylor really, uh, the department is committed not only to scholarship, but also to like pedagogy, mm -hmm. that uh, the teaching colloquy is really it's specific to the department and a, a unique way for students to really feel like they're prepared to teach those classes um, yeah. come their fifth year. Yeah. Um, and then in fifth year, we're teaching those classes and uh, finishing writing and and trying to finish up. And I think that the statistics for, for our program suggest that most students do finish in about five years. But there's opportunities. I mean, when you go... Once you finish your qualifiers, I, I suppose you can start applying for jobs and things. And then there are some postdocs available for folks who maybe will stay around for a six year. Is that right? Um, so I think it depends on a case to case basis. I know that that the I believe it's the graduate school. There are a few postdocs that are offered kind of across the university. So mm -hmm. it's not as though there's a necessarily always a religion specific of one. Of course. Yeah, that's a good um, point. But those there are postdocs that do exist um, that offer like a pretty um, competitive sort of uh, stipend or salary to go along with that. And obviously uh, some teaching opportunities. I do think most people finish in five years. In fact, um, the two theology, um, at least two of the theology folks that are currently in their fifth year, they'll be defending their dissertation mid-March. So wow. they're like raring to go. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I, I do think that they're, 
there's such great interface between the faculty and students that um, I think most students feel really supported that they have mm -hmm. the kind of tools to um, finish within the five years. Yeah, cool. So that's the program in a, in a nutshell. Um, tell us about life as a student at Baylor. Uh, tell us about what it's like to be kind of in the cohort. Yeah, absolutely. I One of um, the reasons why I chose to come back to Baylor, I mean, there, there are so many great PhD programs um, across the states and internationally mm -hmm. as well. Um, but I've just been delighted by um, the kind of relationships I've gotten to form with, with my peers and colleagues in the program and the kind of collegiality that really is I think really unique in a PhD program. Um, I know I, I have friends that are in other programs that um, have nothing but good things to say about the academic sort of side of their program, but I do know that sometimes just due to, um, in part, the competitive nature of the job market, that uh, some some programs can feel like a little bit more cutthroat yeah. <laughs> as far as the kind of the general dynamic. Um, but I I am so grateful for the kind of collegiality that exists at Baylor. Um, five years is a really long time to commit to do doing something. And so it is a gift to sort of um, not just sort of be peers, but to become friends with um, other folks, both in my area, but also outside my area who are in yeah. the program or in other departments. And so I do think that that's something pretty unique to Baylor um, is the kind of general sense of support and care and um, yeah fun and friendliness that that any we have particular going students on. you think are exceptionally fun um i'm like trying to <laughs> you don't have to go on brain. record um no no uh zen is definitely oh, thank you pretty That's high on, the, on my list you know, jeff was a, fun people jeff was a contender with. but zen wins right definitely Perfect. definitely okay, I'll, I'll take the 20 dollars later oh you got okay, it great <laughs> and then what what's the um I guess try and give us a picture of of the sorts of students uh, that that we that we have in our department. For sure, I, the department really sort of strives to be a diverse place in all senses of the term, and so um, we have uh, several international students. Um, we have students that come in from um, you know Yale, Duke, Princeton, Harvard, but also students that come from. Um, smaller, um, more kind of evangelical programs. And so there's definitely a sense of diversity as denominationally. Um, and I really think that that just enhances both kind of the academic side as well as the social side of the yeah. program that yeah. um, I definitely feel enriched from the kind of diversity of backgrounds mm -hmm. of uh, folks who I'm in class with and also the different kinds of commitments that they bring to, to the table. and in conversation. Yeah. You're listening to Currents in Religion, and I'm speaking with Katherine Ellis, a PhD student at Baylor University. So tell us a little bit more about how, how the religion department, which we're a part of, fits into the broader uh, Baylor University context. Definitely. Um, yeah, so the Baylor is, of course, a um, Christian university, a Baptist university. And so sometimes folks get the religion department a bit confused with um, Truett Seminary, mm -hmm. which is also a part of Baylor, though um, separate from the religion department. Um, 
the the seminary has master's programs, um, doctor of ministry program, and a PhD program in preaching. Um, but the religion department has the PhD in religion in these four different areas mm-hmm. that we've been talking about. Um, that being said, one of the great things during your coursework is that all students have the opportunity to take some classes outside of the department. And so, again, depending on your interests, um, that might look like taking classes in the history department or the English department. Mm -hmm. You might take a class at Truett Seminary Mm -hmm. or um, in philosophy. Um, So, again, kind of depending on what your interests are, what makes the most sense, uh, there's plenty of sort of opportunity to get to know and get to glean from other faculty on campus, which is really exciting. For yeah. sure. And um, there's initiatives um, that are kind of binding some of our our department to other departments throughout the university. I'm thinking specifically of this really cool grant um, that I think Devin Stahl and Natalie Carnes also a part of securing that yeah. grant um, in the religion department um, about uh, religion and psychological studies. Um, so really cool stuff and overlap. And I think um, being a part of a bigger research institution um, gives us access to a lot of really interesting opportunities um, from, yeah, taking classes with others, but also just to the sorts of events and sorts of initiatives that are taking place on campus. Oh, definitely. I think particularly sort of given Baylor's new like R1 status, um, that comes with a lot of huge perks. And being a student on this campus, you there are always exciting conversations going on, um, both in the in the department, but outside of the department. And so that um, grant that's a multi-million dollar grant is a great example of a way in which the religion department, faculty, and um, some students are getting to sort of partner with the sciences here at Baylor. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I should also mention one of the uh, groups that helps this podcast exist is the University Press, um, which has a, a really strong reputation of its own. Um, and I think that that's just a, such a neat thing to have uh, intersecting with our department in various ways. Um, I guess it just all it all kind of contributes to the, the academic liveliness that, that our department has um, is embedded in here at Baylor. Oh, absolutely. And I, I hear that the Baylor University Press has like the greatest kind of breakout fun time at um, our annual meeting uh, at the yeah, yeah. AAR. Yeah, it was a good time. It is a good time. <laughs> um, okay, so last thing that we should probably talk about is Waco itself. Um, what do you think of Waco? Yeah, Waco's great. As I said, um, I uh, attended Baylor as an undergrad, um, graduated in 2015. And so I will say coming back to Waco um, after being gone for quite a few years, it is a different place than it yeah. was during my undergrad. Um, and I say that as a positive thing. Uh, there, It really is a city that's kind of on the move. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, there constantly are new restaurants opening up. There's a really fun kind of art scene as well that's um, still growing. Um, Waco's, Waco's a good place. It is significantly more affordable than <laughs> a lot of yeah. other large cities where you have universities. Um and Waco has a really interesting and rich and also difficult history. Mm-hmm. And so I know um, for myself, it's been really fun to embed myself in the Waco community and to get to know a little bit more 
about it yeah. um, and about my neighbors. But um, it's also you're quite close to Dallas, quite close to Austin. And so, so we're just all on I-35. So if you need a if the cool concert isn't at the local coffee shop here mm-hmm. off campus, then you're not too far away from um, some larger cities as well. Yeah. But no, Wake has been a pretty good, a pretty good time. Yeah. And we like it. I mean, with a few kids, it's, it's been a really fun city to, to have a family in and, um, yeah, there's, there's things to do museums and parks and, um, trails to hike. It, it really does feel like a, a lovely city. I will note as someone from, uh, Indiana, uh, that the summers are wild, but the winters are phenomenal. I mean, I will say the high today is 53, and it felt like one of the colder days we've had in a while. Yes. I woke up and it was 31. So it was it was cold out this morning, but like three days from now, it'll be 70s again. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now the weather's not too bad. Um, we'll definitely want to live somewhere with good AC. Yeah, for sure <laughs> for the summers. Yeah, but no. Wake is a good place. I mean, it, it's interesting. A lot of the friends that I graduated with an undergrad, um, some of them stayed, but a lot of them left, moved away to bigger cities, and they have since returned to Waco mm. with their families. Um, and I, I do think there's a way in which Waco is kind of continuing to sort of retain and draw um, more folks in, uh, which I think is pretty exciting. Yeah. Catherine, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Zen. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine about Baylor's graduate program in religion. Now I'm going to hand things over to Dave Nelson, the director of Baylor University Press, who is going to introduce you to a Baylor University Press author and one of their new books. You're listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm your host, Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press. Today on the Elevator Speech, we're joined by Dr. Kendall Cox, Director of Academic Affairs at the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University and author of Prodigal Christ, a Parabolic Theology, now available from Baylor University Press. Kendall, thanks for being with us today. What's your elevator speech for Prodigal Christ? What's the big idea? Well, first, thank you, Dave, for having me. And I want to thank all the good folks at Baylor University Press for working with me on this project and bringing it to fruition. So thank you. Prodigal Christ is about what it sounds like. It's a Christological reading of the parable of the prodigal son. And as I think many people know, this parable is found only in Luke 15, 11 through 32, and it's one of the most popular of all of Jesus's teachings. It's been retold, reinterpreted, represented countless different ways over the last couple of millennia in every variety of genre and medium, so not just in theology and biblical studies, but in literature, theater, painting, film, and so on. Uh, It's really just one of the most enduring themes in in Western art. So it's curious that despite all the creative attention it's gotten, um, no one or no one that I'm aware of, and if anyone else is aware of someone, I'd love to know, but no one um, ventures to read The Prodigal Son 
um, the, the character, the prodigal son, Christologically until the late 20th century. And it's curious that the first person apparently to do this is a modern critical reader, Karl Barth. So Barth claims that we leave the story underinterpreted or we don't do justice to the story if we don't admit that there's a parallel between Jesus Christ, the storyteller, and the lost son, who's the main character in the story. And he says this identity between Jesus and the younger son in his far journey is given, quote, in, with, and under, the plain meaning of the narrative. Now, if you know Bart, the question arises, is this just his usual relentless Christocentrism for which he's sometimes critiqued? Or does Bart see something in the text that really no one ever before him saw? And this prompts another question. What if someone before him did see it? Would this change the way that we respond to a Christological reading of the prodigal son? So reading around in my doctoral studies, as one does, I noticed something in Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. Uh, if you're familiar with Julian, you'll, you'll know she's typically classified um, as, a, as a mystic, and that's something I call into question. But she tells a fascinating story. It's usually referred to as the example or parable of the Lord and servant or master and servant. And the story bears strong structural and literary resemblance with the parable of the prodigal son and what's more surprising to Bart's interpretation of the parable. And the more time I spent with it, the more I became convinced that this was a creative homiletic retelling of the Lucan narrative. And it recasts uh, the key figures in her own idiom. So initially as a master and servant, but then eventually she morphs back into the language of, of father and son. And thankfully I found a couple of other scholars who agree with this, but there hadn't been any kind of extensive work on it. Um, so in the same way as Bart, Julian reads the wayward servant son figure as polyvalent. He represents fallen humanity, but also the incarnate Christ, as well as the eternal son of God. So how do these two disparate but monumental figures in the tradition both come to such a rare conclusion? What's interesting is that they overlay the parable with the same web of scriptural stories and images. And I, I won't run through all the chapters and verses, but most notably related to creation, fall, captivity and exile, incarnation, uh, divine kenosis, these emblematic narratives of descent and ascent. So the identification of the prodigal son and Jesus Christ emerges intertextually. Uh, the book also looks at length at the doctrinal ramifications of the identity between the eternal son and the prodigal son, which is more than we can get into in an elevator speech. Um, but there is one more thing I just wanna highlight. I don't think it's incidental that the parable form becomes the vehicle for doing Christology. So the point isn't just, you know, oh cool, there are these interesting, unusual Christological readings of the parable. The point is to elevate parable as a genre of theology that is uniquely fitting for discourse about the complex identity of God incarnate. So the parable form allows us to do something that bothers Bart's methodological imagination for years. And that's to speak out of both sides of our mouth, to, to retell multiple stories and identities at once and as one. So that's the reason for the tag and the title, Prodigal Christ, a parabolic theology. Excellent an exciting book. 
thank you, Kendall, for sharing your elevator speech with us. Thank you, Dave. You've been listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press, and today my guest has been Dr. Kendall Cox, author of Prodigal Christ, A Parabolic Theology, now available from Baylor University Press. Well, all right, friends, that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for making Currents and Religion a part of your day. As always, I'd invite you to share this episode with someone that you think might enjoy it, to leave us a review so we know how we're doing, to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and to engage with us on Twitter at C-I-R Baylor. Until next time, take care, and thanks for listening.